There is beauty in a desert, even one that is expanding. There is beauty in the ocean, even one that is on the rise. And even if the jig is up, even if it is really game over, what better time to sing about the earth than when it is critically, even fatally wounded at our hands? In this pivotal time for planet Earth, Colorado author Pam Houston asked some painful questions through her new memoir, Deep Creek, Finding Hope in the High Country. Aren't we more complex, more interesting, more multifaceted people if we do? What good has the hollow chuckle ever done anyone? Do we really keep ourselves from being hurt when we sneer instead of sob? If we pretend not to see the tenuous beauty that is still all around us, Will it keep our hearts from breaking as we watch another mountain be clear-cut? As we watch North Dakota, as beautiful a state as there ever was, be poisoned for all time by hydraulic fracturing? If we abandon all hope right now, does that in some way protect us from some bigger pain later? If we never go for a walk in the beetle-killed forest, if we don't take a swim in the algae-choked ocean, If we lock grandmother in a room for the last 10 years of her life so we can practice and somehow accomplish the survival of her loss in advance, in what ways does it make our lives easier? In what ways does it impoverish us? I'm Katie Bosler, and this is Active Voice, 49 Writers' podcast on how current events and issues are shaping the work and perspective of writers like Pam Houston, who, when she's not spending time in endangered and beautiful places or teaching writing— lives with horses, goats, and dogs in her cherished home of almost 30 years, an off-the-grid ranch in the high country of Colorado. We are all dying, and because of us, so is the earth. That's the most terrible, the most painful in my entire repertoire of self-torturing thoughts. But it isn't dead yet, and neither are we. Are we going to drop the earth off at the vet, say goodbye at the door, and leave her to die in the hands of strangers? We can decide even now not to turn our backs on her and her illness. We can still decide not to let her die alone. How do we do that? I don't, I'm not a scientist and I don't have the answers on how to actually change the course of what's happening, if that's even possible. I mean, if you listen to the scientists, it sounds like it's not. That said, I'm a fighter and a survivor, and I think the earth is too. Everywhere I look, I see ways the earth is trying to correct our mistakes no more no more beautifully than right outside my window after the West Fork fire, seeing the regeneration of the aspen groves on the hillsides behind my house. But I think the real question is, how do we act now? Like, how do we, let's say this is it. Let's say we're going down. Like, I want to go down singing. I want to go down saying this was such a beautiful planet. And in many, many places, including this one, it still is. And there's much to be celebrated and uh, much to make each other aware of in the natural world. I still believe in getting people to see it and be in it and care about it. Yeah, you know, living in this corner of the world the past 27 years, and it's a stunning natural landscape, and we're also witnessing the effects of climate change firsthand. And I'm still amazed by the mist rising from the trees on the side of the mountain, you know, or the alpenglow down the channel across from our house at the end of the day. You feel the same way about the ranch where you've made your life. Absolutely. I mean, the the whole, the, the mountain to the south and west of me burned entirely, 109,000 acres. The whole mountain went up in flames. And while it was happening, I thought, 
well, how am I going to live here and just look at this devastation every day when I'm so used to looking out and seeing living things? And immediately, you know, the green shoots came up in the wetland. The fireweed came up and covered the hillsides. Now it's been five years. The aspens are about as tall as I am, and there's a million of them. And when they turn in the fall and the charred pine stumps, spruce stumps are still standing, hoodoos of the mm-hmm of the burnt trees. And so when you look out there in the fall, like these little aspens are just a wash in tequila sunrise colors. And then it has these big slabs of charred wood in between them. It's so beautiful. Like it's intensely beautiful. And I think, And it sounds like that started not long after this devastation. That's right. No, it started immediately. I mean, the hikes I took in the forest a month after the fire was out were full of beauty of a certain kind. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I was in the Arctic. I was in the Eastern Canadian Arctic. And I also write about this in the book. And seeing we, we, we were on a boat and we came upon this giant thing that we thought was an island. It was this huge piece of ice, five miles by five miles. And, you know, the captain didn't know what it was at first. And we got closer and closer to it and it was made of ice. And It had these giant rivers pouring off the edge of it that were making these sort of porcelain, blue porcelain pour-overs and these giant cracks. And what it was, it turned out, was the piece of the Greenland ice sheet that fell off in 2012, the largest piece ever. So here was this floating evidence of our doom, right? Oh, my (laughs) gosh. There it was. And it was like one of the most spectacularly beautiful sights. I don't know how tall it was. It was way taller than the boat I was on, mm-hmm. uh, must have been a couple hundred feet high floating, and then this flat top and then these rivers pouring off of it. It was one of, and the sun coming through it. It was one of the single most beautiful sights I've ever seen. And yet there it was, like evidence of our of our demise, you know. And like how do you hold those things together? But I think you have to. You, you have to. And um, I mean that's one reason that I, I'm loving – my traveling in the Arctic right now is because it's what's in your face is the is the tragedy and the beauty, like right mm-hmm. up next to each other. You still wake up and go to bed every day afraid for the planet. Oh, sure. And will this play into your writing from here on out? Oh, it's always been in my writing, I think. You know, all my life I've seen places I love destroyed. <clears throat> I, I mentioned in the book that I talked to a, an earth scientist. I had a conversation with an earth scientist while I was writing this book and expressing to him my fear. And he said, well, you know, the, the future of the earth looks really bad in the 100-year frame. It's like, but in the 500-year frame, it looks pretty good. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, there won't be hardly any people left, but the ones who are here will have learned a lot. And, Seriously, not oh, many yeah. people left. And Ugh. and that actually <laughs> gave me hope. I mean, I, mm-hmm. you know, I love the earth. You know, I love the earth. <laughs> the earth raised me. It mothered me. It made me who I am. And, um, you know, would I trade my life for a healthy planet? You bet I would, especially after I've had 57 good years. If I could cash it in and then the earth could just go on and the creatures could go on, there's no question about whether I would Mm -hmm. make that trade. I would make it in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. So 
I mean, I don't think there's any question that we're in for massive calamity, you know, global calamity. But I do think, as we see, you know, the the worms are still cleaning up the DDT. You know, the, the, mm-hmm. you know, the earth will, you know, E.O. Wilson says we can take it all the way down to the microbes and it'll still come back. Mm-hmm. Um, so whatever mess we make going out, and it'll be a big one, you know, I, I think the earth will probably recover. But aren't we also at this time of healthy transition? You teach indigenous students Mm -hmm. at the um, Institute for American Indian Arts in Santa Fe, and there's this real blossoming around post-colonial upheaval and awareness right now. What has working with these students told you about that aspect of of this this painful time that humanity is going through? Well, so many things. I mean, I feel like I've gotten such an education there in— in my country and and all the terrible things it has done, you know. Uh, I mean, not all of them, but uh, 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 many of them. And, um, you know, it's, it's shameful. Um, it's shameful that we won't recognize what, you know, the, the genocide we've exacted on people who were, you know, by and large, uh, taking care of the land and living on it um, gently, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. right? We came with our industrialism and our need for extraction and our greed and our wanting more and more and more and more and more and more and wanting it right now and threw everything out of balance. I mean, I think, you know, I think everybody knows that, you know, on some level. It's unconscionable, you know, how we stole this land and then destroyed it in, as I say in in my book, you know, there are places that weren't properly named 100 years ago and now we've named we've them killed well, yeah we've named them and claimed them and killed the trees and killed the fish i mean it's i i'm a consumer you know i fly 100,000 miles a year and and i'm ashamed of that but it's what i do to to do my work you know and i didn't have children so there was no petroleum diapers and i keep my house at a really good temperature i mean we're all making our mess packed and our <laughs> mess you know <laughs> there you we're go. making yeah. our deals and i'm i have a uh, a terrible carbon footprint by virtue of the amount I fly to do my work, and and I'm so aware of it, you know. So I I don't mean to point the finger, but but we've been so unaccountable for how we've treated this land that we stole. I, I would love it if what you're suggesting is true that we would fess up and that we would start with reparations and we would start treating the land better and we would become a culture that organizes itself differently in relationship to the land. I would give up my I, – I would find another way to make a living, you know, mm-hmm. if we agreed to do this together. But, you know, in the current administration, there's no chance. We're, we're going the other way. We've got our foot on the gas and we're going to just – Well, that and that's the calamity that's right in our face, isn't it? And, and, I, and I personally feel assaulted with it every day. I mean – yeah, you know, he seems to want to, he sh- who shall not be named, <laughs> seems to want to, you know, just destroy for the sake of destruction and erase it. Sometimes I wonder if this is our comeuppance to have this person leading us in this huge mirror going, sure. of course, dang. Of course it is. He's showing us who we are and how we live. I mean, these days, everything I eat, I think, okay. Like how many 
planes or boats did this thing have to get on to get to me? How much packaging does it have around it? Everything I use, you know, and I think you're right. I think he is a mirror for all of us, a a grotesque mirror. And I do think probably someone like him needed to come along to raise the awareness of others. I don't think we'll survive it, but I think our awareness is raised. (laughs) So there's that. You mean us or the, the next coming generations? I don't know. From what I read, it seems unlikely that the earth can sustain us mm-hmm. unless there's radical change or radical die-off and our needs. That, mm-hmm. That's yeah. how it yeah. seems to me. Is your next novel dystopian? <laughs> no. Well, I guess I, I guess I shouldn't say no because I don't know what my next novel is. I don't see how we get out of that. Um, I have a lot of hope. When I see the young people and the work they're doing and the books they're writing and the way they're thinking about, I certainly don't want to be the one to say they're not going to save it. They're not going to turn it around. Maybe they are. Because you teach young people at UC Davis, for example. Do they make you more hopeful? Oh, yeah. And and my students at IA as well, you know, and my students everywhere. I mean, I live with young people. They come to my ranch and after they've been my graduate students, they come to my ranch to tend my animals. I I say I have no children, but suddenly I have like 15 (laughs) or 20, 26 year olds, you know, that come for Thanksgiving. So um, (laughs) so I have a lot of young people in my life and they do give me hope. And, you know, these kids who are going to take the NRA down, they give me hope. You know, not that I'm anti-gun. I'm not anti-gun. I'm not anti-hunting. I'm anti-NRA. And Mm -hmm. I can't believe the purchase these kids have gotten, the parking yes. kids. And then, yeah. the, you know, the, the kids in Europe, you know, mm-hmm. who are changing the world, that little girl who's going to... Greta. Greta. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I totally believe in the possibility the next generation will come and do better than we did. I, I do believe in that possibility. What I don't mm-hmm. know is mm-hmm. if, like, scientifically, mm-hmm. it's too late. And also in your extended family are a number of animals. <laughs> yes. How, how, many, how many animals do you have? Um, I have at this moment um, six sheep, only one gelding, one horse, uh, one donkey, four chickens, one wolfhound, but I'm about to adopt another, and Mr. Kitty. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and and how do your animals, um, especially your dogs, because because I, I get the sense that you're emotionally the closest to them, mm-hmm. inform your outlook on life and your writing. Well, they show they push me the other way. They say live for today. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, my animals have taught me so many things about about being in the present moment, about enjoying every day, about greeting the people I love by wagging my tail, um, greeting the people I love with love. Every time they've taught me how to be with the dying, how to be present to the dying, how to communicate to the dying that I'll be okay without them. Yeah, I mean, they're the, they're my teachers. They've been my, my dogs especially have been my teachers from the minute I got my first dog, you know, Mm -hmm. unconditional love, seizing the moment, being in the moment always being ready to turn the day into a good day. So many things. Now that it's over, it sounds like it might have been a little torturous at times. What was the, the best thing about putting together this memoir? 
this book of essays? Um, I guess the best thing, it was a really hard book to write, and then uh, my editor didn't like it much, and so it was a hard book to rewrite. So it never felt like it was just flowing and, you know, it never – I didn't have one single day where I was like, oh, I love my life. I love writing. It just wasn't that book. Having written it uh, and being able to see my life in an arc, you know, uh, uh, writing a memoir imposes an arc on your life. And I was so busy trying to pay for the ranch and trying to keep it up physically – that I never really understood until I sat down to make this book that it had become the story of my life. It had been the thing that turned me into an adult, a thing that had seen me through the transition from my 30s to my 40s and my 40s to my 50s. Mm-hmm. Writing it allowed me to see my own life as a story in a way that I honestly hadn't before, even though i mm-hmm. surrounded by stories constantly. Your entire life. Yeah. So we're at also at this moment where especially women are coming out about being physically or sexually abused when they're growing up. And I'm close to finishing the memoir, Educated, uh-huh. which is written by a young woman who endured severe abuse at the hands of her brother. How did your childhood experiences weave through this memoir? Well, they weren't there at all in the first draft. And I gave the book to my agent, and she said, isn't this the book where you really talk about what happened to you as a kid? And what happened to me as a kid is that Both my parents were drunk every night, I guess, to be fair. (laughs) Um, And my dad was really violent. He broke my femur when I was four, and I spent that year in a full body cast. And then there was a lot of sexual abuse after that. It really threw out my childhood and into my teens. I hadn't written about it directly, not really because I, I wanted to protect anybody from it, but I had, and both my parents were gone, so I could have written about it as much as a decade ago, I had had a teacher who said, you can't swing a dead cat anymore without hitting an abuse story. That teacher said a lot of things I didn't buy, but for some reason that sentence got into me. And I was afraid to be boring. I was afraid to, oh, just write another abuse story. Like I, That's what I hadn't wanted to do. I took my agent's advice and I tried to incorporate it in this story because I could see her point, which is that The ranch is a healing from that. The ranch is a reaction to that, trying to find a home where I would feel safe. So without that information, the ranch was, it didn't have as much depth as a place or as a thing to me. So I wrote it, and I wrote it very lightly. And my editor said, after reading it, you know, this is the Me Too generation. You have to really say what happened to you in detail. And so then I wrote another version that was super graphic. And she read that and she was like, no, no, that's too much. (laughs) And it was so late in the writing of the book. And, you know, it was sort of at the point where you just want it to be done. And so I was like willing to do it however she wanted it. But we found a place in the middle. And it's a very small portion of the book, but it does, I think, inform the book. And, you know, if I have done my part in any way to contribute to that conversation or to make someone else feel more alone, then I'm really happy it's there. I, I'm not squeamish about it being there. I just didn't want to be boring. And, and also, with all the teaching I've done all these years, like I've seen so many stories that are so much worse than mine that I feel like I'm, that my abuse mm. was kind of run-of-the-mill. It was kind of like what happened in suburban neighborhoods, and you know, which, mm. which probably I, I shouldn't feel that way. But in any case, there it is. It's in here now. Mm-hmm. And, um, 
And it feels good to have written that. It feels good to have kind of come to terms with that. I'm not angry at my parents. People say, have you forgiven them? Forgiveness isn't a word I use. You know, I, I, I understand mm. them, and I'm okay. So did writing about it help to heal that a little bit more? And that? I think so. I don't. I won't know till I get off this tour and I'm able to think straight. I, it's done something. I had two parents who wanted to be parents not at all, and they expressed that in these violent acts. I don't believe that's the worst thing that could have happened to me. I emerged from it able to find other ways to be nurtured. And in a certain way, that's a kind of a gift. I really see it as that. The, the last line of the book is my mother's, which she would love. Like, it makes me hope there's a heaven so she could look down and say, like, I got the last word of Pam's memoir, which would appeal to her. It's my mother always said, I don't even want to see you until dinner. And with those words, she freed me to go out and love the earth. And that's, that's kind of the truth of the story, or at least that's mm. how it feels from mm. here. Does that mean I would go back to my very frightened 11-year-old self and say, oh, buck up? No. You know, those feelings were real too. I was terrified in my family, in my house. But I'm not there now. I'm in this good life, in this good place, doing what I love to do for a living. And I'm able to empathize with my students who are writing about their trauma, you know, and Mm -hmm. maybe I wouldn't have that if I didn't have trauma of my own. So – Mm-hmm. I wouldn't change a thing, honestly. I get the sense it all stems from from the act of storytelling and of writing, the place you're in that you're happy about. Well, it's it's all involved with storytelling. It's it's also other people's stories. You know, I, a, a huge part of my life is teaching, a giant part of my life, the most important part of my life. And um, the work I do at IA, for instance, you know, holding a space for those stories. You know, Tommy Orange was – I was one of his teachers. Uh, he wrote There, There, fantastic book. I was one of uh, mm-hmm. Therese Mayotte's teachers. I get to work with these amazing stories as, as that you were talking about before that are coming out in this renaissance of, of Native literature. And that's so exciting. And my students at Davis who are writing very – Incredible books. I walk into a bookstore, and from where I'm standing at the podium reading, I can see five or six books that I got to work with those people. And it's so exciting, you know, all people younger than me, all people who are just, you know, like the ones who might save the world. And and it's that's a huge and beautiful part of my life. I interviewed another writer who said his daughter gave him hope for the future. Mm. And you have all these your extended family, right. these writers no, who are giving you hope true. for the future. They completely are. You, have, you end the book with a line from your mom. Do you have a, um, a line that, that you tend to leave your students with? Um, you know, mean something I tell them? Yes. I always say, trust the reader because she knows more than you do. And trust the metaphor because it knows more than you do. That's sort of my classic writer advice. And it's metaphors woven through this memoir that get Houston through this seminal moment for the natural world. Last semester, when I asked my class, as I do each quarter, how many of them have ever spent a night sleeping in the wilderness, the answer was zero. And I realized for the first time in my teaching life, I might be standing in front of a room full of students for whom the words elk or granite or bristlecone pine 
conjured exactly nothing. I thought about the books that had shaped my sensibility as a young writer. Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, Silent Spring, A Sand County Almanac, Refuge, A River Runs Through It, In Patagonia, and Desert Solitaire. Now, amid the most sweeping legislative attack on our environment in history, a colleague wondered aloud to me whether it was feasible or even sane anymore to teach books that celebrate nature unironically. This planet hadn't even been mapped properly a couple of hundred years ago, and now none of it, above or below ground, remains unsullied by our need for extraction. As we hurtle toward the cliff, foot heavy on the throttle, to write a poem about the loveliness of a newly leafed out aspen grove or a hot August wind sweeping across prairie grass or the smell of the air after a three-day rain in the maple forest might be at best so unconscionably naive and at worst so much part of the problem we might as well drive a Hummer and start voting Republican. Maybe, but then again, maybe not. Maybe this is the best time there has ever been to write unironic odes to nature. I have spent most of my life outside— but for the last three years, I have been walking five miles a day, minimum, wherever I am, urban or rural, and can attest to the magnitude of the natural beauty that is left. Beauty worth seeing, worth singing, worth saving, whatever that word can mean now. Well, thank you, Pam Houston, and thank you for joining me for Active Voice. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. The book is Deep Creek, Finding Hope in the High Country by Pam Houston. Thanks for listening to Active Voice, 49 Writers Audio Series companion to our Active Voice Writers Respond blog, a forum for respectful discussion and debate on current events and issues. The ideas expressed on Active Voice are not necessarily shared by 49 Writers. Original music by Liz Snyder and Alex Cutlars. Hear, read, and learn more at 49writers.org. <laughs>